Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. This is Daniel Meeks out of Los Angeles, California, reading the role of the man. Sadie Collins from Chattanooga, Tennessee, playing the woman. Lights up. Here's the thing about being an asshole. The main thing. Maybe the only thing. You never look back. No matter what. You you grab the purse off some old lady's shoulder. You don't look back to see... Did she have a heart attack or something? Fall down, break a hip? No. You run. Take the money, toss the purse. Run some more. You jump a guy, smash his face in for no reason. You don't step back and think, Nah, I'm, did I maybe go too far like maybe this guy has a family to support no you kick him when he's down and then you run but you definitely do not look back you know I was a kid once probably okay but who remembers some people grow up to be carpenters I grew up to be an asshole a petty asshole always running Maybe I got a future to get to, which I didn't. I can remember my life before, although I don't think about it much. One moment it was just life. Not very special, but good and expected. And then suddenly one day everything disintegrated. There were police, and the money was gone, and my husband was gone, and nothing was left but disgrace and confusion. And my father died soon after that, and there didn't seem to be anything to keep me there anymore. So I got a job in California. I do remember. I remember clearly putting Toddy and Leisha into the car and starting toward our new life. I was excited at first, but it was a long drive. It seemed to go on forever. Maybe it was too long to take with two small children. I don't know. I don't remember the accident at all. No one knows what happened, only that I drove off the road. And I may have... I might have fallen asleep. So this one day, I'm driving along, tossing some back. Jimi Hendrix turns up loud. And I, uh, I pitch a bottle half full out the window. Really let it fly. And the thing you have to understand is I, I meant no harm to anybody. I mean, this one time, I swear to God, I did not mean to fuck anybody up. I just, just tossing a bottle out the window. Littering, at worst. But it must have hit this car. I didn't see it was there, because suddenly behind me, I, I hear tires skidding and a crashing sound and this car is going out of controls flipping over I can't tell you I cannot tell you why but I did it I did that one thing I sh- should have been disappearing like a puff of smoke but I don't know I guess it caught me by surprise or something that's crazy I'm mystery to this day why I would have done it but I did I I look back
The first thing I remember is opening my eyes in the hospital. The room was very quiet, almost dark. Somebody was there next to me, a a man I didn't know. He was holding my hand, or I was holding his. I couldn't talk for a while, couldn't stay awake. The nurses and doctors came and went, but he always seemed to be there. I heard someone say that he had been the one to find us after the accident. And then when I was able to ask about Toddy and Leisha, he was the one who told me they were dead. I can't imagine how he had the courage to tell me, and then to stay with me as I fell apart. My children... My children were gone. I had killed them. I believe I had to be strapped down for a long time. All I wanted was to slip away. I couldn't stand the thought that I might have to look at anyone in the face ever. But still, he held on. He kept pulling me back to the surface for air. And when I looked at him, his face was so sad. As though he could feel everything I was feeling and understood and forgave me. How could anyone be that strong? Who was he? Why wouldn't he let me go? I run back to look at the car. It smashed pretty good. The driver and these two little... Okay, so I, uh, I couldn't see much. One of them, one of them had red shoes. I couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl, but holy mother, I, I wanted out of there. I was this close to skipping. Only then the driver, this lady, opened her eyes. I don't know if she saw me, but she looked right at me. So. Anyway, I, I started flagging people down. Got a guy with a cell phone. Cops show up. Ambulances, you know, the, the whole scene. And I'm practically standing there with my hands out, waiting to be cuffed. But everyone's all over these hurt people. And when the cops asked me what happened, I said, I, say, I don't know. <laughs> and they believed me. I had to stunk of beer, but they treat me like some kind of hero just because I, I flagged somebody down. If they'd have chased me, I'd, I'd run. But nobody chases, so... I stand there like a fucking moron until they go to the hospital. That's when I could have run. Nobody thought I was involved, but... I knew. I'd seen what I'd done. You see, so... I went to the hospital, too. I think maybe I'm praying to get nabbed or something because the sight of those kids on the stretches. I think I want to pay. Some things you just shouldn't get away with. If I'd have left, I, 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 I'd have to drive off a bridge. And when I was released from the hospital... I couldn't even think about where I would go. There was nothing for me. Everything I had ever cared about was gone. He had walked me outside and he led me to the parking lot and opened his car door. 
just like that, as natural as air. You can't imagine. Without thinking, I put my hand on his cheek and I kissed him. And right there, right in the parking lot, he sat on the ground and cried just like a little boy. I think he is someone who had not felt loved before. It made me so happy. I'd been burdened with thinking I had nothing to give him in return, but now I knew. I could love him. And so I did. And so I do. I will love him for the rest of my life, no matter what. I sat there in the ladies' hospital room, waiting every second for the cops to come in. And when she comes to and she asks what happened to her kids, then I knew the cops aren't going to take me away. No, I'm not going to jail. I, I get to do this instead. I get to look into this mother's eyes and tell her straight out that her kids are dead. I did it. So I tell her. They're dead. I say, hey. She puts her arms around my neck and holds on to me like I'm some kind of comfort or something. I mean, what the hell is this? I'm an asshole, I tell her. I killed your kids. I almost killed you. You'll never have kids again, and it's my fault. What the hell are you doing? I guess I just I didn't say it so she could hear I should have I know I should I wish I could we've been together now ever since there has never been a gentler man never not once has he spoken a single harsh word to me Not when the troubles of the world seem to rest on his shoulders. Not when he's working day and night to pay the medical bills and make a home for us. Not when I push him away because I'm too ashamed to let him look at me. I think he's my guardian angel. (laughs) Isn't that funny? It's a silly idea, I know. And I feel foolish saying it. But so much bad happened. And I find myself believing that God sent him to protect me. How else can I understand this? He's like all the goodness in the world wrapped up as a gift. And somehow, even though I don't deserve it, my name is on the tag and the gift is mine. Every morning I wake up before her and watch her sleep, thinking... Today's the day she's going to remember. Today is the day she'll look at me and know what I did. And every day she wakes up and smiles at me, puts her hand on my face, and I let her. Because this is worse than anything. Seeing her every day knowing what I know and and her not having a clue and treating me like I've got a decent bone in my body. Now this, this is something all, all the cops and courts, jails and all the world got no equal of. I have to tell her. I, I know I have to tell her. 
love her so much. Look at her. The man turns to look at the woman. Look at him. She turns to look at him. They both turn back. It's almost more than I can bear. It's almost more than I can bear. Lights fade. Humanities Tennessee is pleased to announce that the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga and the Lights Up podcast are grant recipients through the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan grant program. A program made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, approved by the U.S. Congress and signed into law on March 11th. Because of this program, Humanities Tennessee is able to provide $941,454 to 91 organizations throughout the state. The purpose of SHARP grants is to support jobs in the humanities, keep humanities organizations open, and assist the field in its response to and recovery from the needs created or exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. These grants may focus on humanities projects or leveraging operational support stemming from the devastating impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They may also help organizations plan for the future and begin the long process of response and recovery to the pandemic. ETC and the Lights Up podcast would like to thank Humanities Tennessee and the National Endowment for the Humanities for this amazing opportunity. Hello and welcome to everyone. We are kicking off season three of Lights Up. I cannot believe it. Christy is here with me, my fabulous co-host, Christy. Christy, this tiny little idea that we had in the midst of the pandemic is now into its third season. How are you feeling? I know. Is it not crazy? Um, It's really cool to see something grow, to see the audience response, the artist response. It's been very rewarding, if I'm honest, to be on this journey. And I have loved doing this journey with you because you have such incredible insight and I learn and I grow so much. I love co-hosting with you. I've got to say, Dana, I'm so excited to be back with you. Same, same, same. I'm going to throw all the love back to you. We have one season for each of your children. And so also we're going to throw some love to our amazing guest, our amazing playwright who is kicking off this third season for us. We are joined by Barbara Lindsay today. Hi, Barbara. Christy and Dana, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for letting us do a reading of your play, Holy Hell, which we both thoroughly enjoyed. Um, And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about playwriting today. Um, because the main focus here on Lights Up is putting a light up on the playwright. Um, Oftentimes that lone person who we don't always get to interact with when we're putting on a show. Uh, So that's what we want to spotlight and talk all about playwriting with you today. So thanks for joining us. Oh, it's one of my favorite. I will talk about what I call dramatic storytelling. Anytime with anybody, it's just such a rich field and encompasses so much and so many different kinds of artists because you know the playwright what the playwright does is in two dimensions and then it takes all the other people to to bring life 
to those two dimensions and make it three dimensional, give it voice and have it move through space. So yeah, it's just, it's my favorite topic. Oh my gosh. We have been doing this for three seasons. We have talked to so many different playwrights and what you just said is so obvious. And yet the first time we've heard it explained that way. Brilliant. So give us a little bit of background on Holy Hell. So where, what, where did this play come from? What inspired it? Yeah, it's funny. With some of my plays, I really don't know what the seed was. But for Holy Hell, I remember exactly the moment that this play was born. I, I lived in Los Angeles for a long time. And I was standing on the corner of Wilshire and La Brea, busy corner, busy intersection. And uh, a car pulled into the intersection to make a left turn. The guy, the driver rolled down his window, dropped an empty potato chip bag onto the street, rolled up his window and, and drove away. I, I thought, well, how, how could somebody do something that's just careless and nasty like that? He knows it's not okay. And I, and I realized, well, he didn't stop to look at the effect that his litter had. He didn't stop to see. I also ran into a couple of young men who had hiked into this beautiful natural area and they were, they were painting, you know, they had their paint cans and they were tagging some rocks. And, and it just, it began to occur to me, the only way people can do some of the horrible things they do is they don't stop and look at the consequences. They don't look back. And that's how Holy Hell starts. It's, I heard the man's voice first, but then I realized there has to be a counterpoint to the man. And that's how the woman was born. And that's, I always write almost completely from my characters. I often don't know the story I'm telling, but if I can really tune into the characters, it's almost, and you probably have heard this from other playwrights, at its best, playwriting doesn't feel as though I'm making something happen. It feels as though I am allowing something to happen. So I began to hear these two voices really strongly in my head. And they just told their two stories kind of in counterpoint. I, I was also interested in the fact that two people many people can experience the same event and interpret it in very, very different ways. And so that kind of got to be part of it as well. I'm also very interested in redemption, that a person who has been an asshole, a villain, male or female, I always tend to believe this person, if they could just wake up, this person can be redeemed. I actually, I was mugged a bunch of times when I lived in LA, but I got my first mugger to apologize because <laughs> I wanted to reach out to him as a person. I wanted to, yeah. him to see me as a person. I wanted to see him as a person, not just two forces colliding. So that, that also became then part of it that I, I, I began to love my male character and I wanted him somehow to be redeemed. I love that response. I'm seriously like, I feel like the whole world needs to hear that. <laughs> <I love that. laughs> okay. Well, and, and hearing you speak about the play like that, right. And, and we're focusing on one act 
10 minute plays here. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my favorite things about Lights Up is that we can have discussions this deep and with this far reaching and with such a wide scope, even coming from these, you know, short plays, mm -hmm. um, because we can say so much. And, and one of the biggest things you touched on some themes that I actually had written in my notes uh, as a response to hearing Holy Hill that I want to investigate further with you. But hearing you talk about that genesis of Holy Hill and also where you like to write from, it, it really clarifies for me how you said you are a dramatic storyteller. Mm -hmm. And and you use that phrase uh, quite clearly and own it quite lovingly. Um, and I think that's perhaps the whole point of what we do is is creating links to humanity through storytelling. Um, the show I was just involved in out at La Jolla is a Holocaust history play. And the main purpose of that, the driving feature of that play is to look at the humanity of not only the victims um, and the survivors, but also the perpetrators and how they too were equally as human who just made terrible decisions. And so your kind of discussions of, of redemption in the past are are not unlike what we were exploring. And I think that really connects the audience to the story. And that that's very clear in your writing. So you started talking about past and redemption. So I'm going to actually start there, which is not where I thought we would start. I, I asked myself the question, is the past relevant? The man is trying to change and is changing and is seeking redemption. And the woman has no clue about his past. Mm -hmm. And so it really made me go for the first time, well, if your past is a lie of omission, if your past is not relevant to someone you're creating a future with, that does that matter? Do we have to be tied to who we were if we're trying to change? And is this a, a running theme through your work or was this something more that you kind of really explored in Holy Hell? It, it's very possible that it's a theme in more of my plays. Uh, sometimes it's funny. A, a friend of mine once asked me if there is a running theme through my plays. And fortunately, at that point, I had a big enough body of work that I could look back over it and see that there were some themes that recurred. But I'm never aware of that when I'm writing. For me, each play is its own world. And I often have to write the play. I have to write several drafts of the play before I even know what it is that I'm writing. I very seldom start by thinking that's something that I want to say. It almost mm. ends up being something that has to emerge from this particular play. Um, you know, the whole thing about how our pasts are relevant now, it's funny. That's been coming up for me politically a lot because there are, well, and it's also socially with the, the whole Me Too movement. There's, there's the question for me, and it's a really, it's not an easy question, is should we be held responsible for something we did 10 years ago, five years ago, one year ago, if since then we have evolved, we've been able to acknowledge who we've been, what we've done. Should we still somehow be held accountable? Should we still be, be punished? Should we still be judged by all of that? And I don't really, I, I don't know. 
I don't know what I think the answer is to that. I certainly think that the past is very relevant because everything we've gone through is what has us be who we are right Mm -hmm. now. And that's, to me, that is the most interesting thing in the world. That's where so many of my plays come from. I look at a person and I think, what kind of, what led them to be who they are? What's happened to them that they were able to do this? How do they see themselves? Um, in what ways have they been broken or injured that, that are affecting them now? Um, have they gotten the love they needed? I'm just, I am, I'm not curious about a, a lot of things in life, but I am very curious about human behavior. And, and about what it is that makes people who they are. And from the point where we are right now, what is it that then is possible for each person? Because some people do continue to evolve and learn from their mistakes, and some people don't. Actually, so much of what you have shared so far reminds me of this Brene Brown quote, where she says that it's easy to hate from a distance, so move in close. And the closer that you're willing to get in with someone you do see their humanity and you do. Um, I loved how you described two forces colliding when you were talking about, um, you know, having your, your mugger apologizing to you, which I just think is just, um, uh, I don't know what that's amazing. Um, but to see that humanity and humanize each other, you know, there's, there's been so much socially where we other each other, if that makes sense, that's, that's the terminology she uses. And I think it's spot on. So I love you bringing that up and, and sharing that because I think it's so continuously relevant in where things are today. Where did you get your start as a playwright and what made you want to pursue playwriting? Well, even as a child, I was writing all the time. I wrote poems and little novels and stories and essays, and I was always recognized in school for my writing, but I didn't want to be a writer. I wanted to be an actor. I was, I feel very fortunate that my whole life I've really been, I've really known what I want to do. So when I went to college, of course, I majored in theater, but I didn't want to learn about theater. I wanted to to be an actor. So I dropped out of college and uh, I moved to Hollywood. And I don't, I don't remember, I think it was that I started writing monologues for myself for acting classes because I'd been away from the, from that, right. I had not been using that writing muscle for a long time, but I began to realize I want to be an actor. I am a playwright. And that distinction got very, very clear to me because, and I don't even really call myself a writer because I, at this point, I don't do any other kind of writing. I am very specifically a playwright. The ideas that come to me uh, come as, as dialogue for plays. The first production of my first play, which was in Los Angeles, um, one of the critics called it unendurable. And that didn't stop me. That didn't even really hurt because I knew that the play needed more work. So, and I was very taken by this play. It was not good yet, but I just loved the idea. It's about a, a man who can levitate, who can float, but he doesn't want to because it makes him feel like a freak. He wants to be normal. So he wears leg weights he, he tries to get a job as a motel maid, but uh, he 
he's not really able to kill off that part of him that's most precious. So I, I joined a writing group. I was very fortunate to find a mentor early on, a UCLA professor, and to join a group of emerging young emerging writers. We were all together for 17 years before I left LA. And I just began working on this play and working on it, working on it draft after draft. And that play won an award that was given by the New York Drama League in 1989. And because of that, it had its first performance in London in 1991. And boom, I was a playwright. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it took, it took a lot and every play still plays don't necessarily come out any easier than they did then. Every play is its own challenge, especially for, for full legs. I've written a lot of short plays like Holy Hell well, no plays like Holy Hell. I've written a lot of short plays, as Holy Hell is, but um, I've I've finally realized that there it's not possible to make a career from short plays. I mean, I've had over four hundred performances, but mostly short plays. So I'm really focusing now on my full length plays. I just had, in fact, my latest full length just had a production, uh, a full run right here in Seattle. Um, and that was that was a pretty amazing experience. So, uh, and I feel very fortunate to love to do something that I'm going to be able to do for the rest of my life. Well, for as long as my cognition <laughs> is still in good shape, um, and I still act. Also, I act whenever I have the opportunity. But, but I'm I'm here. I'm I'm on the planet to be a playwright. That. That is so clear to me. I, I have something that I call writer's deluge, which is the opposite of writer's block. I mean, I, I have so many plays that started already that I'm never going to have to start a new play for the rest of my life. I mean, there are just anything, anything can be turned into a play, anything, any moment, any idea. Any any dream, any passion, any commitment can be turned into a play. So um, I so I just I mean ideas are coming all the time. Sometimes I have to I actually have to kind of bat them away. Like, Leave me alone. I've got one already. I'm already focused. But, yeah, but but I, I I'm you know I'm here to write. To I'm here to write plays. That clarity that you have, which gives you such amazing confidence, is so beautiful. And that's one thing I think that anyone, whether you are a playwright or a performer or, you know, no matter what it is, um, the fact that you were able to hear, read, this is unendurable. And you're like, yeah, that doesn't bother me. I've got more to do. Like that unshakable clarity is so genuine and what a gift that we get to hear that and share that with our listeners, because I think that truly is what we all should strive for in whatever our passion is to have that clarity and that confidence to be like, no, I'm going to move forward and there will be roadblocks. Um, it's so easy to feel bogged down by those moments, especially in the artistic world. Mm -hmm. um, so just even hearing that, that, that triumph and from, from that clarity, from your own personal clarity is just 
I mean, we could end the podcast there for me. <laughs> I mean, we're not going to, but that was just, thank you so much for sharing that. And it's so genuine and it radiates from you. And, and it's really, yeah, it makes you unstoppable, I think. Pretty much. You can certainly hurt my feelings as a person. And oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Writer, I, I, I can't really even take credit for the fact that I am kind of unstoppable. I and I have had enough success that I believe I have something to offer. Certainly not every play is great, but I have some that I say with, without pretension but without shyness that they're they're perfect. They're absolutely perfect. I did what I wanted to do and the fact that there are even a few of those makes it easier to to not be discouraged by the ones that are not perfect and did not quite come out the way I wanted them to. Do you have a particular one that stands out for you as, you know, you're particularly proud of this one? For my short plays, Holy Hell is one of them. Holy Hell is, uh, it's, it's definitely one of the ones I don't want to touch. Um, another really early short play called Grunions just came out. I, I worked on it and worked on it. I must have written the last four pages over and over 10 times when it was in rehearsal for its first performance, but it just, it came out just right. And then I've got a longer one act. This, the trouble with this longer one act is that it's an awkward length. It's not a full night but it's too long to go into a festival of short plays. But, oh my God, I love this play. It's called my almost, uh, This Almost Joy. And it's a professor, a retired professor who comes out onto the stage and he looks around and then he tiptoes down to the audience and he says, listen, I'm in this play, but it's really boring. And you're here and I want to talk to you. And so he's got this long monologue but the, but the actor really does have to interact with the audience. And then the other characters in the play come out and they treat him like he's schizophrenic and he's in their garden talking to their plants. And he keeps saying, no, 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 dear, to the audience, come on, make noise here. Don't you see they're really here? Let's ignore the play. These are real people. And the, the other characters simply will, will. So the audience is kind of, is kind of forced to choose. Do we honor our own reality or do we honor the reality of the play and it's just it was done in australia there was a company that took it around to like a bunch of different play festivals and it won every award it was done in los angeles it won every award that sounds like an etc play christy yes it does i was like i want to see this on it <laughs> you were part of a playwriting group and you were with those people for 17 years yes. you mentioned Yes. Um, did those people help you develop a specific process? Uh, are you still in touch with any of those people? Do you still get support from them? How did that help you uh, grow from where you were to where you are, are now? Well, at the beginning, um, this UCLA professor, Dr. Jerry Fay, um, he, all of us in the group, were just beginning. And he really gave us a foundation to stand on, like the absolute fundamentals, the basics of what needs to be in a play in order for it to be a play. And really helped me understand 
why something will work and why it might not work. So having those fundamentals kind of drilled into us really made a difference. And then every one of the people in the group, at first, for the first few years, it was kind of fluid. There were people coming and going, but there got to be a core of us, the ones who stayed together for so long, even after Dr. Fay died. We continued to meet every Saturday for that many years. Actually, we met up until the year that I left Los Angeles and moved to Seattle. And now when I come back to Los Angeles, we still get together. Every, every one of them is still writing. Some of them have gone on to write novels or screenplays um, or for television, but everybody is still a writer. And each, each one of them has just such a unique voice. Oh my God, I, I don't know. I don't know what my writing trajectory would have been without them because we, because we'd been together for so long, we trusted one another and we respected one another. And when I moved to Seattle, which was completely on a whim, I didn't know anybody in Seattle. I'd never been here. I had no friends. I had nothing waiting for me. But the first thing I did was start looking for a playwriting group. I need, I need people who I know are going to help make me a better playwright. And the thing is, at this point, so many of the groups that I was in when I, when I moved here to Seattle, there's a lot of talent. There's an incredibly rich uh, theater community here in Seattle, but pretty much every group I was in, I had so much more experience and so much more accomplishment than the other writers that I often felt like I was in a position of kind of being, you know, like the school marm, like, well, I can actually tell you why your play's not working and what it could use, but, and, but that didn't work. I needed to be with, I needed to be with peers basically. So I, yeah. I have found my group of peers just makes such a difference because I can only see what I see and hear what I hear when I'm working on something. And if I know, if I think that something is there, I don't necessarily know if it's made it from my imagination onto the page until someone else reads it and and they see if it's there or not. So I would never be without a, a playwriting group, but it's got to be, it's got to be people who I totally respect and trust, you know, just like in a marriage. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always said, I don't really, I don't like when I walk into the room and I'm the most experienced or the smartest or whatever, because then it's like, there's no learning and I'm always yeah. ready to learn. Right. Yes. And so it's really great when you're in with a group of people who can safely challenge you mm -hmm. or, or, you know, so yeah, I, I understand that completely. Um, Is there anything about the theater world today that you wish were different or that you wish would change and morph? No, I, in a way I would say the opposite. I would say that theaters nationally have finally started waking up to the fact that more voices more more voices need to be heard specifically female voices bipoc voices lgbt etc voices um i i think the more voices that are heard the more kinds of stories that are told the better off all of us are going to be so so rather than wanting to change that, even though it puts me at a bit, a bit of a disadvantage, I I say, yay, absolutely. It's time for that. Well, I mean, that's 
A, it's you're so curious uh, and in tune with humanity on such a, a it's so, I was going to say broad, but broad yet detailed level. Um, I mean, for Holy Hell, for example, could literally be performed by almost any two actors, right? You could have people of color, you could have trans actors, you could have whomever, right? It's about these two people. Um, and so I have not read much of your other work, but I imagine that your work does encompass quite a, a scope of people and your view, I'm sure, also influences that as well. Well, one thing I've started doing, um, I have a full-length play that's actually different drafts of it have won two fairly big awards. I'm still not happy with it. Um, <laughs> but the first time it won an award was at the uh, University of Missouri in St. Louis, and they did a production there. And simply because of the casting pool, the cast was uh, was all Black. Now, since I'm white, I tend to think of my characters as of being white, but the play had more texture, even without any of the lines being changed. The play had the, the, the fact that there were actors of color just brought this, this depth to it. It's also, it was a very, it's my most political play, which then again, mm. adding color to that really, really just, it made the play so rich. If you put a person of any ethnicity in a role, it brings something to that role. I wanted to step back to a moment where we were talking about the Brene Brown quote, because um, I had about, I had like two other little questions that were really um, specific to Holy Hill. And I wanted to step back to that moment. I just didn't want to cut you off if you had had something to say, but um, it was so insightful what you said about get in close. Um, right. And I think that's kind of what we've been circling around this whole conversation about getting in close to something that may be different or something we may not be familiar with, or what is the common thread of humanity amongst us, amongst these characters between whatnot. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, this season, we're focusing on major events. Holy Hell specifically made me think about the fact that this was a major event that occurred in two people's lives. Someone else could have walked by and it wasn't necessarily, but it was a major event for these two people. Um, and yet they were strangers. And it got me thinking about how during the pandemic, we depended on strangers, delivery workers, food service workers, the, especially here specifically in New York, we are in such close quarters. We depended on the strangers on the subway to be wearing their masks. So that when they sat next to you, right, there was this kind of interdependence on on people we didn't know. Um, and it made me think about what the role of strangers is uh, during extraordinary times. I just, when you said, like, get in close, that made me think about um, with Holy Hell, how are these two, not to quote Tennessee Williams, right, but it's, they're not dependent just on the kindness of strangers, but um, talk about how these two strangers become familiar to each other and how they depended on each other through something that was extraordinary or perhaps catastrophic, right? It, this could have gone another way, this relationship, but what, what drove it together in Holy Hell for you? Well, again, part of it is that the man having seen what he thinks he causes 
it he just becomes inextricably con- connected as he even says himself if i'd have left i'd have had to drive off a bridge mm. because he he realizes that having seen what he caused his whole view of himself and his life in that moment has altered and without even realizing that it's happened he becomes his life becomes entwined with this woman's and in her turn she thinks that she caused the accident that killed her children it's almost like you know they say a baby duckling will imprint on whatever mm. animal it sees when it's a certain age and she in a way she sort of imprints on this man she's lost everything but he's there holding her hand and so without knowing each other each of them carrying a very very heavy burden of guilt they become so connected that as she says i i will love him for the rest of my life we're all like jigsaw pieces we're all odd, kind of odd shapes and what we're looking for is to find a, a, a place or a person where our shape just fits how much we all want to connect and but what that takes is showing your humanity allowing somebody to see who you really are we don't have to be strangers but we have to we have to be vulnerable to yeah yeah yes. yeah but yeah, it takes being willing to let somebody else be human you know to to see the humanity to honor the humanity that's what there is to connect to that's one of the things of this piece that really got me was the cost of grace and forgiveness is sometimes our own judgment our own self-righteousness um to literally sever those from ourselves and say okay i'm going to sacrifice my ego or my little better than thou attitude to say, to get down on, you know, the same level to, of, of honesty and vulnerability of, okay, you suck. You hurt me. I suck. I hurt you. We're human. It's all good. Let's just go. You know, and I know that's really simplifying it in a, but you nailed it that we are all made up of the same stuff. We all have, we all have moments of self-righteous indignation that we have to kill within ourselves in order to extend the grace necessary for our humanity to actually show through and shine and for us to get anywhere. I, yeah, I have a long way to go with that, I must admit, but I think that's what's going to save us. That may be the only thing that's going to save us now. That journey is exactly why I think you are an amazing example of that. I don't know your journey, but just the fact that you're having the conversation and you're saying the things, whether they come out perfectly or imperfectly, you're willing to have the conversation. And I think that's 100% what it takes. Um, We have had this beautiful conversation about humanity, and it's really coming from your characters. And as you mentioned, when we first started talking, you write from characters. You don't even necessarily have a plot going, but you're writing from, from character and like a very deeply human perspective. Um, One thing I would love to ask you about is actually the title of this piece, Holy Hell. Um, And you, you mentioned um, Grunions was another title. So it sounds like you have exciting, fun titles. Uh, But one thing that struck me about Holy Hell was a, you can look at it as like a 
you know, an exclamation, a curse. I've said it a million times in my life. But until I heard your play, I never thought about the juxtaposition and the actual duality within that phrase of um, how do you come to titles? It sounds like maybe they come to you after the play, but um, what's the process like for you for titling a play? Well, holy hell, it's one of the titles I'm I'm happiest with. I, I actually don't think I have uh, a real touch with titles. Some of my titles okay. are, are fairly pedestrian. I sometimes will retitle something many, many times until one of the, I, I like, I like a title that has a little bit of music to it. Uh, that longer one act that I was talking about is called This Almost Joy. That one has yes. a little music to it. Um, yeah. I have one of my one of my favorite titles is called the the uh, psycho bitch and the throbbing blue veiner. I love that because <laughs> it's very catchy. But then I have some titles that are, you know, kind of lie flat. You know, I I sometimes have to try on many many titles before I find something that just goes kachunk. That's the one. And sometimes I find it, and sometimes I don't. We have three little questions that we always ask all of our playwrights across the seasons. Um, so we just love to throw those three out there um, and, and then we'll wrap things up for you. Uh, but before we do that, we always also like to ask, um, where can our listeners find you? So any social media handles, websites, um, if you're on New Play Exchange, we will always make sure we play a little clip of that and we can um, add all the uh text to the liner notes. So we want people to be able to find the rest of your work and any of the other plays you spoke about today. Okay. I am on New Play Network as Barbara Lindsay, uh, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. Um, and I have a website, Barbara Lindsay Playwright with a W-R-I-G-H-T. So those are the, I'm not really, I don't do social media because I know myself. If I got on Facebook, that would be all I did. Just trying to stay. <laughs> I am over socialized. I have way more friends than any one person needs. <laughs> I said I love them all. And it just I I need to be very careful about making sure that my time still that my day still has time in it for, you know, writing and things like that. So yeah. So uh don't don't bother looking for me on social media. I'm 70 years old. I I'm of that generation. I remember life before computers. And I wanted to say to the two of you, thank you so much. I mean, who doesn't want to have someone ask for their opinion? And you know, <laughs> who doesn't want someone to say, "Tell us your stories. Tell us what you're like." I, this is this is a gift for me as well. So thank you. Oh. So, Miss Barbara, is there a word that you particularly love? It could be a favorite word or it could just be one that you're just drawn to. Mom. Yeah. Yeah. Gonna cry. <laughs> yeah. I'm like I'm I had twins a year ago, they just turned one, so I'm like, well that will make me cry. <laughs> Oh, yeah. My my mom died a few years ago, and she was just the nicest, most loving, friendly, kind person in the world. So, yeah. So the word, when I say the word mom, it has a lot in it. Okay, what else? 
Um, so yeah, we don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be a favorite. It could be something that you really love or feel nostalgic towards, but we want to hear about, um, a place, a setting, a location, um, real fictional otherwise that you really adore. Pacific Grove, California. It's on Mm. the central California coast right on the coast of uh, Monterey Bay. It's near Monterey, Cannery Row, Carmel. Um, The Big Sur Highway up the coast kind of ends there. And uh, my family had a a little cottage there, a vacation cottage. Oh, gosh, ever since I was about 10 years old. And then at the end of their lives, my parents ended up moving there. So that, that place, first of all, it's about the most beautiful place that I've ever been to on the planet. And it just is so rich with family history. In fact, in October, um, the family is having a gathering there. My niece and her fiance are getting married in a park right across the street from where our parents' house used to be. And I get, I've been ordained by the internet, so I'm going to be conducting the the wedding. (laughs) Yeah, definitely, definitely. That place resonates for me so much. Is there an item or, um, a, you know, some some kind of token in your life that is particularly precious or has a, a history to you that you just a prized possession, if you will? Well, sadly, this is no longer in my life. For decades, I had a copy of the Dr. Seuss book, Scrambled Egg Super. And it was a, a large book and thin, and that was my laptop for a long time. When I was ready to write, I'd put that on my lap and a piece of paper. I always write longhand, even even with computers now. I always start with start my plays longhand. And wow. that book meant it's time to write, and I have no idea what happened to it, and I miss it terribly. So if I were to look at something now... Um, I, oh, I'll just say my husband. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he appreciates that. (laughs) We got married late in life, so I really, really appreciate him. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, that's the perfect. That's the perfect ending. What more can we say? Keep your heart open. The Ensemble Theater Chattanooga and the Lights Up podcast were one of 11 organizations across the Chattanooga Valley to receive grant funding through the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan. As part of this podcast, for each episode, we would like to highlight one of the other organizations receiving a sharp grant. The Chattery is a nonprofit learning collective located in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We are a proud, women-founded, and Black-led nonprofit organization offering fun, affordable, and accessible online classes and workshops for adults. Our classes range from painting and calligraphy to mastering Excel spreadsheets and financial planning. Since 2014, we've hosted more than 1,500 classes and events while connecting with over 17,000 lifelong learners from Chattanooga and beyond. At The Chattery, you can learn from a variety of community leaders, experts, and hobbyists, all who share a love for teaching, a love for learning, and a love for exploring curiosities. Classes are dreamt up and taught by you. In other words, our classes are for the community, by the community. 
September offerings include protecting your energy as an empath, home canning 101, basics of floral design, erotica writing, engage and seduce your reader, improv for life and work, get organized, closet edition, woven cloud wall art, photography lighting basics 101, gender and sexuality 101, Enneagram 101, embodying the types. Information on registration and other classes can be found in the episode notes. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theater company located in Southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ETC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast.